This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is Dr. Bobby Donaldson, who is director for the Center of Civil Rights History at the University of South Carolina. We're going to be talking about African Americans in South Carolina between World War I and World War II. Bobby, welcome back to the journal. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Before we actually get into the period between the wars, let's have an overview of the status of African Americans in South Carolina in the years leading up to World War I. Okay. So I think it's important for listeners to remember that the decades before were both decades of promise and decades of challenge. So if you look at the 1870s and 1880s, there was the belief that the state was in the midst of what we have now called a reconstruction and that many of the goals and ambitions of African-Americans upon freedom and emancipation might be realized. Now, of course, the history of the state now suggests otherwise, that those dreams and hopes were dashed often through violent means. And so in that window of time between the 1870s and 1890s, you see African-Americans really trying to regroup and figure out what is the best strategy. Uh, One of the uh, texts that I use in my classes that gives personal insight about this period uh, is the powerful autobiography Born to Rebel by Benjamin Mays uh, from Epworth. And in that autobiography, Mays describes the conditions, the challenges as a sharecropping family, as a tenant farming family, the lack of educational resources. He talks about the reign of violence that even visited his own family in the famous Phoenix Riot. And listen, the Phoenix riots had to do with African-Americans voting in Greenwood County. Yeah, trying to exercise their right to vote and being threatened by mob violence um, mm-hmm. to challenge that. So that is the culture that leads into the turn of the 20th century. Uh, and Mays uh, is born uh, in 1894. Uh, so he is one of those young men during the World War One period uh, who is coming of age with that memory and that backdrop uh, with him. Well, it's interesting that you, that you mentioned Mays because I have a quote about the status of African-Americans. Mays not only was uh, a native South Carolinian, he also taught for a while at South, what is now South Carolina State that before he, did. he went to Atlanta. Um, and he reported a conversation between two South Carolina black men. I know my place in staying it, said the older of the two. The younger replied that he found it difficult to know what his place was, given the confusing arrangement of Jim Crow laws and customs. On the train, it is the front. On the ship, it is below. On the streetcar, it is the rear. And in the theater, it is above. These men, May said, were both born and reared in South Carolina, but lived in two different worlds. Precisely. Precisely. There's another powerful quote in May's uh, biography where he says, for a young Negro— to live a halfway decent life, one must learn the art of getting along with white people. That was an important component of just staying, staying alive and surviving. Now, of course, one of the important milestones in Mays' early childhood was the passage of a new state constitution mm-hmm. in 1895, a constitution that sought very directly to undo many of the promises and possibilities of the Reconstruction era. So this constitution is a powerful document that very much shapes and guides uh, African-American thought in the early 20th century. I mean, here are African-Americans now seeking ways uh, to move beyond that constitution. One of the most powerful speeches in the Constitutional Convention, as you know, Walter, was that of Robert Smalls, mm-hmm. where Robert Smalls, who helped to write the 1868 constitution, is now trying to defend the, the rights and, and, and privileges of African-Americans. And he says, amid people like Ben Tillman, he says, my race needs no special defense. All we need is an equal chance in the battle of life. And what you see between 1890s and World War I and thereafter are African Americans in many different avenues trying to figure out how to create an equal chance. After the 1895, Jim Crow takes effect immediately. Right. So you have the 1895 Constitution. You have the the powerful United States Supreme Court ruling Plessy v. Ferguson. You have an uptick in racial violence. You have profound efforts to disfranchise African-Americans, not only in South Carolina, but across the South. So all of that are the handicaps that people are facing as the nation moved toward World War I. Well, you mentioned Mays, and one of my favorite memoirs from that period is Mamie Garvin Fields, Lemon Swamp. And she talks about in the 1890s, she grows up in an integrated neighborhood in Charleston, which was very common. 
at the turn of the last century. And then all of a sudden, Jim Crow laws were enacted and families that had spoken to each other, been neighbors in the, the best sense for a generation or two, all of a sudden, there was a wall. Right. And as you mentioned, a wall people had to learn to navigate. Right. And that was happening all over the place. And I think many people who are coming of age at the turn of the 20th century begin to see that whatever possibilities are now very dimly lit. And they're struggling in figuring out how do you fight against that? Uh, what decisions do you make for your own families? What new institutions do you create to create a bulwark for African-Americans? Or do you ultimately decide that it is in your best interest to leave South Carolina? And one of the important developments, as you know, is that many people decide to literally protest with their feet and go elsewhere. Yes, yes. In 1890, South Carolina was better than 60% African-American. By 1922, it becomes a white majority for the first time in over 120 years. Right, right. And, that's, and that's, that is a direct result of what we now call the Great Migration, where African-Americans are making decisions about where is a better future, uh, where are better job opportunities, where is it less likely to be uh, undermined by racial violence and disfranchisement. Mm-hmm. And so you begin to see families making these decisions to move. And now they're moving in many different directions. You have some people who are actually moving to the cities. So you see an expanding population of African-Americans in Charleston, in Columbia, and other urban spaces. Then you also see others deciding, no, it's now time to move elsewhere. We're now looking toward Baltimore, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, which have very strong uh, South Carolina populations. Yes, in fact, the uh, expatriate South Carolinians in Washington, D.C. were a very strong cultural social force. Right. Very much Particularly so. around Howard University. Right. And I mean, many of, these, many of these communities now still have churches that have the South Carolina Club, which is now the grandchildren of those early migrants uh, who went to those areas. Mm-hmm. Mamie Garvin Fields talked about she actually left. Mm-hmm. And then we get to Father Along, a memoir, again, about Greenwood County, a man coming back to look at the world his grandparents left. Right. Right. That's John Edgar Whiteman. John right. Edgar Whiteman. Right. Yeah. And, the, and the, one of the, I think, the important components now is that there's now so much more material that we have at our disposal about this window of time. Uh, many of those newspapers that we thought were long gone, uh, some of them have now been digitized that give us insight about not only African-American entrepreneurial development, but also African-American politics. Uh, in this, this window of time, the Palmetto Leader newspaper is being published in Columbia. And there are other small newspapers elsewhere in the state. And through digitalization and preservation, many of those documents are now more readily available uh, for students and scholars. In terms of African-American entrepreneurship, isn't this when small businesses begin to flourish in what are now becoming the African-American parts of town? Absolutely. So one of the things that does happen as a direct result of discrimination and Jim Crow is that African-Americans turn inward. And they begin to build their own enterprises, their own businesses, their own clubs. And so you begin during World War I period most directly beginning to see these African-American downtown districts emerging. And that is where you begin to see uh, the sort of settlement of African-American entrepreneurs and professionals and organizations. Uh, And one can now travel throughout South Carolina and go to these spaces. Regrettably, uh, many of them are no longer standing, but there are uh, increased efforts now to mark those sites, whether it's Columbia or in Greenville uh, or in downtown Charleston. You, there are those areas which have direct roots back to this time period that, that we're discussing. One of the downtown areas in Columbia, below Assembly Street to the river, was a predominantly African-American. Yeah, that area was called Ward 1. And many of those, many of those families, uh, through some research we've done over the last decade, those families moved to Columbia during World War One. And there's a strong connection between many of those families who lived in downtown Columbia to areas now called Fort Mott in Calhoun County, who came to the railway station um, and lived in those areas which are not, which are only in walking distance from the university. And all of that area now, through urban renewal, uh, has been dramatically transformed to both state facilities and university properties. Was the church? As an institution, did that become one of the key institutions? I mean, no, I know we have we have clubs. We've got Masonic lodges. We've got, in terms of cultural clubs, reading clubs, particularly yeah. for women. How does all of this fit together? Well, I think again, what happens with the with the rise of the migration into the communities, into these cities, you do begin to see the churches taking a larger role and having a greater influence, and you begin to see churches expand. So one can go to. 
Charleston now and see Mother Emanuel, which was constructed in the 1890s, but it's the current current building. Uh, but its population, its membership expands significantly during World War I as more people are moving into Charleston. One can look at a church here in Columbia called uh, Zion Baptist. The current building was built in 1916, and it was built to to accommodate a very large, over 2,000 membership population. One can look at the Springfield Church in Greenville and see the same development. So many of these churches are not only becoming places of worship, but they are becoming strong community anchors and institutions. Uh, when, you look, when you look now in this window of time around World War I, it is where you begin to see the beginnings of what later becomes the NAACP. Uh, the NAACP's chapters are formed uh, in Columbia and in Charleston in February of 1917 when the famous writer James Weldon Johnson comes to these areas to create these chapters. Uh, but many of those early meetings are held in uh, these large African-American churches, including Mother Emanuel and including the Zion Baptist Church in Columbia. And the young NAACP in Charleston decides to lobby for African-American teachers. Yeah, one of the strangest developments, and that actually becomes a real catalyst. I mean, almost before the NACP is formed, already emerging is African-Americans in Charleston and elsewhere very much concerned about inequities in education. And in this particular instance, it was the lack of African-American teachers or a law that prohibited African-American teachers from teaching in African-American schools within the city districts. And so they began a very active and aggressive campaign, simply at that point seeking black teachers in black schools. And they successfully generate 10,000 signatures on a petition that is then brought to Columbia and is endorsed by other South Carolinians. And by 1920, uh, African-American teachers are now teaching in the black schools of Charleston. One of those persons who was very much involved in the planning of of that protest uh, was Thomas Miller, a former Reconstruction leader, and a very young teacher named Septima Clark. All right. Thomas Miller was first president of South Carolina. South Carolina State. Yes. Uh, and Septima Clark had initially taught on John's Island, uh, taught in Charleston, and then comes to Columbia to teach at Saxon School in the 20s. And in Columbia, the NAACP lobbies for OYWCA. Yes, it does. And so in 1917, uh, the, the organizers of the Columbia branch of the NACP uh, include some very enterprising young men. One man's name was Butler W. Nance, uh, who was one of the first African-American attorneys in South Carolina in the 20th century. Another was a young lawyer and newspaper editor named Nathaniel J. Frederick and a young tailor who had moved to Columbia whose name was I.S. Levy. Uh, he was among those early founders. And he then establishes a, a very prominent tailor business uh, and clothing store uh, in the black business district around 1916. Bobby, we need to pause a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal. And I'm talking with Dr. Bobby Donaldson from USC about African-Americans in South Carolina between World War I and World War II. I think the point you made is that trying to deal with the realities of Jim Crow, the African-American community is has basically withdrawing from the white world where it can. Yeah. And they're also, the unimportant point is that they're building coalitions and they're building networks. And so the NACP in Charleston and the NACP in, in Columbia are in direct collaboration and consultation as they are with what is happening elsewhere around the country. In 1919, South Carolina was prominently featured in the NACP's national convention. N.J. Frederick goes there to represent Columbia, and a young artist goes to to Cleveland, uh, whose name was Teddy Halston. And Edwin Halston, his given name, was a very accomplished artist uh, who lived in Charleston, uh, whose family owned a very prominent funeral home, but he was a key organizer, an activist uh, in Charleston during the war years, uh, and, and went to Cleveland to talk about what was happening uh, here uh, in South Carolina. Well, pe- people wonder now in this 21st century where you've got news 24-7 and constant, almost incessant communication, how was this network, how were people communicating? You, you didn't have long-distance telephones. Right. But there was a network, and the railroads were key to that. The railroads are key. We have now in our records, uh, in multiple collections, telegrams going back and forth, correspondence going back and forth. And these individuals who were the leaders of the NACP all knew each other in other capacities, whether it was 
uh, religious, fraternal. So they regularly met. Many of them were the graduates of the historically black colleges. So they knew each other. And so what happens after you have the formation of branches in Charleston and in Columbia, you then have branches in places like Aiken, Anderson, Darlington, Florence, Orangeburg, Beaufort, all within this kind of early World War I era. And that's what people don't realize. They somehow think, well, the NAACP in South Carolina, that, that happened after World War II. No, it happens. No, it has ebbs and flows, but there is a very strong movement during the war years where the NAACP uh, has a tremendous influence in, in many of these areas. Some years ago, I had to go give a talk about civil rights in Anderson. Uh, and I did a lot of black brown research. And when I when I got to Anderson, I realized there was a very strong and vibrant NACP chapter in Anderson in 1919. And the leader, I'm forgetting his name now, was so prominent and successful uh, that he came under attack uh, and under threat by Klan violence and ultimately leaves and I believe moves to Ohio. So many of those very pioneering civil rights leaders in the World War I era are actually some of the very same people who protest with their feet and move elsewhere around the country. In the world of Jim Crow, which South Carolina very much helped create, once war is declared and troops are being trained, white South Carolinians are, are shocked that there are going to be African-American oh. troops trained right at Camp Jackson. Oh, there is tremendous fear and anxiety. And you, and you know it better than most of the, the correspondents going around about what, what, what Negro soldiers are coming. I mean, one looks at near Spartanburg at Camp Wadsworth. These are Northern African-Americans who are coming down. And already there's a perception they will start trouble. And there's a famous encounter uh, between these men who later become part of what is called the Harlem Hellfighters, the 369th Regiment out of New York. That's one episode. And then you have what is now Fort Jackson or Camp Jackson, uh, the 371st. Mm -hmm. uh, these are all South Carolinians largely who are coming down to be trained. And there's a great deal of anxiety about what are they being trained for? Will they be armed? Uh, and, and so there is a great deal of consternation about the fact that these black men in uniform may ultimately be a real threat uh, to the power structure. And of course, the 371st was an African-American unit. And when it goes to Europe, because the U.S. Army was segregated, it's assigned to French command. And it's under that French command that Freddie Stowers from Sandy Springs, mm -hmm. his heroic actions result in his being awarded the Medal of Honor. You know, ironically, Walter, the, the, the real fears of some of the white leaders of the state do come to pass. So when, those, when the 371st comes back, uh, there's a famous uh, uh, return celebration honoring them at Benedict College. And there was an African-American physician whose name was Haygood. And he says, you know, we have been on trial throughout this war. And we've proven ourselves well capable of being men and citizens. Now the question is, what will this country do for us? And that becomes a question asked in many different quarters during that period. Yes. And in, in the years immediately following the war, there is confrontation. Absolutely. So there's no irony that as these black soldiers are coming back, being held in some quarters as heroes, they are now coming under threat and under violence. There's, there are multiple stories of African-American soldiers in uniform being killed simply for being black men in uniform. African-Americans were under threat, and in Charleston, white sailors caused a race riot. Right. So many people may know about this reign of violence around the country called Red Summer, but many may not know that one of the episodes in that reign of violence in that, that violent summer was actually here in Charleston uh, in May of 1919, where African-American residents come under attack by soldiers. Um, and, and some fight back during that encounter. Not only was there the race riot the summer, but in January 1919, there was a, a statewide convention of African-Americans, yes. which caused some more than consternation in the white community. Yes. So there were multiple mass meetings. Uh, some of them were organized by people like William D. Chappelle, who was a very prominent leader in the AME church. Some were organized by a man named Richard Carroll, who was a very conservative leader, African-American leader of the Booker T. Washington School. But in all of those public meetings, they were discussing about what's next. If African-Americans are lending their time and their energies and their bodies in the cause of the democracy around the world, what will be their future? 
And so they're discussing this and they're discussing what rights are they entitled to? What should be their voting rights? What should be their opportunities in education and jobs? And they're really envisioning a very different state and a very different country than someone like Jimmy Burns. In fact, because of the concern during the Red Summer, Burns, when it was all over, he said, the war in no way has changed the attitude of the white man toward the social and political equality of the Negro. Right. And he says very directly that the future will be white supremacy. He's very clear in that. And so people like I.S. Levy, people like N.J. Frederick, they understand that. And so there are now, in their own ways, some outwardly, some very quietly, figuring out what is the strategy? How then do you carve out a future for people in this state if indeed your most prominent leaders have made it very clear with a line in the sand that white supremacy will govern this state? There was an organization formed by white Colombians Mm -hmm. called the South Carolina Constructive League (laughs) to promote the just treatment of the Negro and the cultivation of harmony between the races. Yes. As long as it's understood that the state shall be dominated by its white citizens. Yeah. So we will, we will, we will create biracial coalitions, but it's very clear on whose terms those coalitions are negotiated. So there were, uh, during the war years, what some have described as progressive or moderate white leaders seeking out a different path forward. But at no point did it, did it underscore equal rights equal opportunities for African-Americans. All right. So we're, we're 1919, and you mentioned Frederick and, and Levy deciding where we're going to go from here. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's move now into the period between the wars. Sure. And as we have already discussed, tens of thousands of African-Americans chose to leave South Carolina. They're leaving. And they're leaving, and with that goes a great deal of talent. Great deal of some of the very notable leaders among those who are saying, "Listen, if we want uh, even a, 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 a modest improvement in our conditions, that can't be here. I mean, that can't it can't be under the current situations." And so they are protesting. And you know, there, there's there's a, an irony too because all of a sudden, white leadership that had wanted the black majority gone realized that the labor force with, is disappearing. With, and they, actually passed laws to prohibit trying to keep them from leaving the state. Now, that's the irony. So during the Great Migration, if you look at some of the, the correspondence and some of the, some of the minutes of the General Assembly, there's, there's also great fear and consternation that the vital labor force, black people, are leaving. And they're taking those resources, that talent, to these northern places. And so during this very window of time, there are a number of measures passed statewide and local that restrict mobility, and also prohibit recruiters from coming to uh, South Carolina and elsewhere. And, and one, of the, one of the most important documents uh, during this window of time is a, an amazing newspaper called the Chicago Defender. The Chicago Defender had branches all around the country. It had columns about migration. It announced the wonders and the promises of the promised land in the North. And even in South Carolina, doc, uh, publications like the Chicago Defender and the Crisis Magazine were prohibited from being circulated around the state for fear that these very documents might entice or lure black citizens away from the state. Well, you also had two other major national black newspapers, from, one from Baltimore and one from Pittsburgh. Yes. And they all came via the Southern Railroad yeah. and the Seaboard Airline Railroad. And the, so because, the Baltimore Afro-American and the Pittsburgh Courier, who had reporters on their staff— from South Carolina. And one of the main transfer points was Florence. Yes. That's where the switching yards yes. were. Yes. And the papers would come down from the north, and African Americans who were employed by the railroad would put those newspapers going to different places. And I think we underestimate the degree to which these papers and publications do have influence. So many may know the famous uh, civil rights activist Majeska Monteith Simpkins, who is very active during this window of time. Uh, she, in the 1920s, is a teacher at Booker T. Washington High School in Columbia. She later gets very involved in the uh, public health and t- anti-tuberculosis movement. By 1939, in 1940, she's among the founders of the state conference of branches of the South Carolina NAACP. But prior to that, her mother was a prominent member of the Niagara movement a group established by Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois and others in the early 1900s. And Ms. Simpkins talks about reading 
a publication called The Voice, The Voice of the Negro, published by a man named J. Max Barber, who was originally from South Carolina. And this was a very early civil rights publication, but it clearly had an impact on people like Simpkins about uh, their own awareness of themselves and what others were doing around the country. If a newspaper goes to a barber shop, Mm -hmm. to a beauty shop, to a general store, Mm -hmm. it's not just going to one person. No, and it's actually being discussed. One of the other important developments that occurs during this window of time, and we really mean between World War I and the Great Depression and World War II, you begin to see the development of a number of African-American women's organizations and club organizations evolving or expanding. And there is in Greenville the Phyllis Wheatley Club. There's a Phyllis Wheatley Library in Columbia. There's a Phyllis Wheatley Literary Society in Charleston. And when you look at the newspaper coverage and you look at some of their minutes and correspondence, they're discussing the latest news in these periodicals. They're discussing the latest publications in the New Negro Harlem Renaissance Movement. And so these very spaces become those areas for discussion. And you're right. For people who may not be literate, there's also a space where these documents are discussed. And so you're still gleaning the content, even if you're not reading the the, the documents directly. The Federation of Colored Women's Clubs, uh, it becomes a statewide organization. And their motto, lifting while we climb. Yes. The progressive sense of self-improvement, because many of these women's clubs were literary Correct. organizations. Right. They become their own spaces to address this need. So they are providing education. They're providing housing for what they call delinquent mothers and daughters. Uh, they're, pro- they're providing a training, job training yep. as well. Yep. We need to, to let our listeners know that the state provided for juvenile delinquents, white, male, and female, for black males, but not for black females. And mm-hmm. one of the the projects of the Federation of Colored Women's Clubs was the creation of Fairwall School Correct. in the Columbia area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it, and it becomes funded by these women around the around the state, in, including um, Celia Dow Saxon uh, in Columbia, uh, Miss Wilkerson in, in Orangeburg and elsewhere. Again, it was institutions were created because they had to be or because they wanted to be. But again, it is within the black world. Yes, there were white folks like Bishop Finley right. of the Episcopal Church who really helped get money for Fairwall School, but they really didn't have any idea what was going on, did mm-hmm. they? I mean, no. it's... No, it, it was. I mean, it was, a, it was an insular world uh, in so many respects. And so within that space, these black institutions emerge. One of the, uh, one of the cultural moments in, in South Carolina, my, my great-grandfather was born uh, in, in Aiken County, what is originally the old Ellington area, in 1897. And for his 90th birthday, we gave him a copy of a brand new publication called A True Likeness, which was a photographic account of African-American life, primarily in Columbia, but elsewhere from the 1920s. And one of the important takeaways when the book was, was, was launched was the amazement, particularly among white South Carolinians who had no idea that there existed people like this, black middle-class professionals, uh, black institutions, the photographer uh, of those images was a man named Richard Samuel Roberts, who moves to Columbia from Fernandina, Florida, during this window of time, uh, in the late teens, early 20s, establishes a business in the African-American business district in Columbia. He works uh, at night uh, in the post office, and then during the day, he's taking photographs in his studio and around the state. And these are extraordinary images of black churches black Masonic orders, black businesses, black colleges, black families. And that is, he, and he helps to document this world that is created beyond the color line that most people, most white South Carolinians, had no idea even existed. Not only did they not know, sadly, they didn't really care. Right, right. And so the amazing uh, discovery about Richard Samuel Roberts is he dies uh, in the late 30s. All of his negatives are then placed under his home uh, in a crawl space where they remain for nearly 40 years. Uh, fortunately for us, they are put in a, in a dark, cool space. Fortunately for us, they are glass plate negatives. And now there are about 3,000 images that document this window of time and helps us tell stories we could probably not tell 
without the photographs. The, the negatives themselves have all been, they've made um, contact sheets okay. of all of them. So we now have reproductions of all of the original images. If someone really wants to look at those, they're now available through the Carolinian Library? They're available. And, you know, it's, we're at that point now, the window is really narrowing uh, in terms of people who may have memories of those and those images. Uh, you mentioned Sugardau Saxon. There are several photographs of Sugardau Saxon. Uh, there are images of the Brewer Academy. There are images of Bettis Academy over in the Edgefield area. Uh, so throughout the state, these photographs began to help us chronicle important, often overlooked chapters in African-American history. Well, education was important to the African-American community, especially to the burgeoning middle black middle class, because the public school system for African-Americans was in such a sad state where it existed at all. There were private schools, black academies, scattered around South Carolina. Yeah, so you, you begin to see the expansion. Some of these schools date back much earlier, but you begin to see the expansion of a network of private academies uh, during the war years. But you also begin to see the expansion of public education. Uh, we talked about the movement in Charleston uh, to have black teachers teach in black schools. Well, at the very same time, there's a movement in Columbia to secure greater funding for a new public high school. So in 1916, some of the very same organizers of the NACP are those who put forth an effort to create the new Booker T. Washington High School, uh, which becomes not only a school for Columbia, but for throughout the region, where people are coming to this extraordinary uh, school that has initially ninth grade and 10th grade and ultimately has a full-fledged 12th grade program by 1950. There are young folks who do come to Columbia to live with relatives so they can go to that high school. Correct. Um, they're, they're boarding um, to, to take advantage of, those, of what many view as a, as a superb education in that building. We talk about Booker T. Washington High School here in Columbia. But some of these private schools like Mather Academy, they were also boarding school, literally boarding schools. They were. And then many of these schools were not only private schools, but they were addressing real needs in communities um, and providing opportunities that were not elsewhere. So before Booker Washington, there was a school called Howard School, and there were places like Benedict College. And one could literally go to Benedict College from what is now kindergarten to college. Mm -hmm. And so someone like Majeska Monteith Simpkins, her entire schooling was at Benedict College. Mm -hmm. What is interesting is, yes, n not only was that true in the African-American community, but Many white schools like Wofford, Furman, so forth, had a prep school attached mm -hmm. to them because public education in South Carolina was sad for everybody. Right. But especially, again, in terms of funding, uh, the inequities that began in the 1890s just got worse. Mm -hmm. So we mentioned earlier this uh, demand by black families in Charleston to have black teachers. Well, what's never really asked uh, is, well, why was there a fear to have black teachers in black schools? And when you look at the correspondence, you, you see some of the white leaders of Charleston are very fearful that these black teachers may have a poor influence on students, that they will begin to teach them about their rights and their opportunities. And someone like Septima Clark said, that's exactly right. That is the hope and goal. And so these black schools are not simply educating in the traditional sense, but they're also shaping young minds to think differently about their futures. Uh, one of the more powerful individuals during this period who deserves more attention was a young man who was a graduate of the Avery Institute in Charleston, mm -hmm. but he comes to Columbia in the early 1930s whose name was J. Andrew Simmons. And he was an extraordinary educator, but also a committed civil rights activist who rarely bit his tongue on activism. And there were people in the Columbia who were very concerned about his influence on training these young men, young men and women to think differently so about was, their future. He was teaching at Booker Washington. He was the principal. He becomes the principal, and he recruits other like-minded people like Septima Clark, who taught at Booker Washington for a short window of time, like Majeska Simpkins. And so when you read the uh, what is now available was a, a newspaper called The Comet, and it was a campus newspaper. And there was within it where students talk about Mr. Simmons insisting on the teaching of Negro history mm -hmm. to offset the history being taught in the schools, particularly 
the history of South Carolina, mm-hmm. whose textbook suggested that slavery was a benevolent institution, a textbook that suggested that Reconstruction was a terrible travesty, and a textbook that suggested that African Americans were content in their inferior condition. Well, Simmons and Septima Clark and, and others, they put forth their own curriculum. And you see this written out in the local newspapers that offer a very different interpretation of Reconstruction, of slavery, uh, and the early 20th century. Bobby, we need to pause for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Dr. Bobby Donaldson of USC about African Americans in South Carolina between World War I and World War II. Bobby, let's get back to the economic side of, of things. Mm-hmm. In the 1920s, the black entrepreneurs are creating their own small businesses, and then the economic world collapses. Beginning in the 1920s, starts in rural areas, and then it comes to the cities with the 1929 crash. Let's let's talk about the impact of the Depression mm-hmm. on Black South Carolinians. Dur- during that window of time, the the biggest question is, can it get any worse? And the answer was, of course, it can, and it did. And so, not only are African Americans during the Great Depression facing economic woes, uh, they're facing political woes. Uh, they're facing Um, challenges to their own well-being. And this is also a window of time where you see yet another uptick in migration, where the the possibilities here seem quite dim and people are looking elsewhere. But the irony, Walter, about this is that you also still begin to see more organizing. And you begin to see more institutional building, even during one of the lowest moments in the nation's history. You begin to see rising memberships of the NACP in small towns like Sharaw. With the dues was a nickel. Right. Right. And people are committing themselves to it. And, and so Shiraz becomes this burgeoning NACP community with uh, a young plumber named Levi Bird who begins to organize uh, and connects with other leaders around the state so that by the fall of 1939, during the Great Depression, these small branches form a state conference of the NACP, which becomes one of the most influential state conferences in the country. Isn't it also one of the first state conferences? It, it is. But one of the driving forces was this plumber who some argued had only a second grade education, but who was phenomenal as an organizer and a strategist. Now, one of the things I think is important to also note is not only do you see the NACP emerging, and one of the, one of the points I hope someone can do more research on, one of the most influential leaders during this window of time, who's largely associated with the North, was Marcus Garvey who formed the Universal Negro Improvement Association, rooted in Harlem. He had a number of branches in South Carolina. And his, his uh, newspaper, The Negro World, is now digitized and more readily available. And it is surprising about the number of UNIA meetings that are occurring in small towns around South Carolina in the early 20s. And clearly, he becomes a real concern because there is correspondence to the governors and others who are now seeking ways to prevent the circulation of newspapers in South Carolina from the UNIA. And there are now um, also spying on others in the state in terms of their mail correspondence to see who is actually committed to this radical group called the UNIA. And so it's surprising that this important organization that you associate with New York, Philadelphia, also has traction in a place like South Carolina. And that suggests that the black citizens themselves are not simply committed to the NACP. They're committed to a number of organizations who they believe are advancing the cause of civil rights. And with the Depression and then the onset of the New Deal, that opens up perhaps some opportunities that didn't exist before. That's correct. And so you begin to see in the local newspapers and organizing and in the ACP where everyone is aware of the New Deal federal programs. And they're trying to figure out how do African-Americans capitalize on these programs when it's very clear that many of those proponents of the New Deal do not necessarily see African-Americans as the beneficiaries. And this is particularly true in these rural areas among farmers and tenant farmers who don't necessarily see their conditions improving at all with New Deal legislation. Of course, one of the most popular 
New Deal programs was the CCC right. uh, for, young, for youth, young men, the Civilian Conservation Corps, yes. uh, which helped create our state park system, among other things. But there was a separate CCC for black youth. And, you also, and you're also familiar with the Works Progress Administration. And one of the important developments there was the Federal Writers Project that actually employed African-Americans uh, to do their own uh, histories of communities. And so there, is a, there was a bio, biography sketch of Celia Dow Saxon created. Uh, there was a biographical sketch of Robert Smalls created that employed young African-American students to conduct this research. But was, what was ironic is that in, in the official publications that came out of those projects, there was actually very little mentioned about African-Americans. And so that's a huge portfolio of material still waiting to get a much larger audience and that was conducted. And it's still housed at the Carolina Animal That's Library. exactly right. Exactly right. And it's a tremendous insight into early efforts to document African-American sites and organizations and individuals uh, that was not well embraced at the time in which that work was done. And the other important development that occurs that is through the, 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 the New Deal programs was a series of extraordinary interviews of former slaves that were conducted, uh, and which now provide insight not only to the 20th century, but also to the 19th century. So the New Deal also brings black South Carolinians to prominence. I'm thinking about Mary McLeod Bethune mm-hmm. and particularly President Roosevelt and Mrs. Roosevelt. Their attitude toward African Americans begins to make the white community in South Carolina a little bit nervous. Oh, absolutely. And you begin to see a growing support, not overwhelming at that point, that African-Americans in South Carolina are actually looking at the Democratic Party through a different lens. Now, the Democratic Party they know is the Democratic Party of Jimmy Burns and others. But here is a new voice and a new perspective in the party uh, that that you begin to see African-American elected leadership in the Democratic Party in northern communities and those individuals are beginning to recognize that they not only represent Chicago, they represent black people all over the country. And, of course, since Reconstruction, African-Americans who still participated in politics in South Carolina were Republicans. Oh, absolutely. They all were. I mean, we mentioned many of the names earlier. So those early NACP founders, I.S. Levy, N.J. Frederick, are staunch Republicans and remain so uh, through the early 1960s. But the change starts in in the New Deal, and one of the ironies in terms of the Democratic Party nationally is that the party employs the son of Joseph Rainey, who was a congressman from South Carolina Mm -hmm. in the 1870s, as the recruiter for the Democratic Party in northern cities. I did not know that. Huh. Bobby, we can trace everything to South Carolina. Just well, get, well just Kel- get, Kelly just, Miller and others argue just that. <laughs> there is a direct correlation to the state. Yes. Kelly Miller is is not – well, he's part of this story. He but is. He, yeah, he is. I mean, Kelly Miller, by this point, in his, in his late years, is a professor at Howard University, but is a prolific writer who chronicles life in the state, even though he's living in Washington. Uh, there's a famous story that he talks about trying to come back to Columbia, and I think he's with – Ironically, he's with Richard T. Greener, and Richard T. Greener was the first African-American professor who joins the faculty at the University of South Carolina in 1873, who remains on the faculty until 1877. And there's a moment where Greener comes back to Columbia, uh, and uh, he is joined by Kelly Miller, and they very much want to revisit his old stomping grounds, which actually is the horseshoe of the University of South Carolina. Uh, And they both sort of stand across the street and look over uh, at the campus, recognizing that there was a moment when African-Americans were the majority uh, and now prohibited on entering the campus. And so Miller talks about that irony uh, in one of his writings uh, in the early 20th century. Well, in in terms of other actions from the new about the New Deal and the African-American community, anything you'd like to add? Well, the other thing I want to make clear, too, is. So again, between World War I and World War II, African-Americans are organizing in multiple fronts. So by 1939, there is the State Conference of NACP. There is also emerging a, a new African-American publication called The Lighthouse, later The Lighthouse and Informer, led by a young writer and activist named John H. McRae. And during this very same window of time, John McRae and others organize a new Democratic Party. 
the Progressive Democrats, that is formed in 1944 as a direct response to the white Democrats in South Carolina who in no way see civil rights as a key component of the party. To me, this, the, the concept of organization during in these interwar years when for many people the world is falling apart, the world of black South Carolinians maybe economically certainly is in the ditch like everybody else's. But in terms of community, it is becoming more cohesive. Right. I think, I think it's fair to say people re- remain engaged in the struggle, though we should not gloss over the fact that for most black residents of the state, times were, were, were severe uh, in terms of economic conditions, in terms of working conditions, in terms of the prevailing threat of violence. So I think you have people like McCray and others organizing, but they're organizing in a direct response to the real uh, challenges their, con- their constituents are facing. I mean, although we're talking about Columbia and Charleston and, and these bigger communities, remember the vast majority of black residents are not in those areas. They're still struggling in these rural communities uh, trying to make ends meet. And very often those ends do not meet at all. And so that's why these organizations are emerging and becoming far more aggressive in their planning because conditions are just that, that grave in, in many of these areas. Very early on, Bobby, you, you, were, you mentioned that I.S. Levy and others said, we've got to learn how to maneuver in the white community. Right. In the rural parts of the state, that was particularly important because most African Americans were either sharecroppers or tenant farmers. Mm-hmm. And how they behaved with the landowner, if they got, quote, out of line, right. they're off the land. Right. And that's, and that's the important um, moment in Benjamin Mays' book that he talks about. He said, to be smart and educated or to be smart and Negro and ambitious might be a death sentence and that you had to figure out how do you eke out survival, how do you maintain some level of self-respect and still get along with white people. And that was, a, that was both a, a, a science and an art that people had to learn and, and, and perfect over time. And I think today in the 21st century, we, we forget that, 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 that the future was not predictable uh, in these areas. Although now we see the results of a civil rights struggle, in the teens and 20s, there was very little on the horizon that suggested that, that there might be integration, that there might be a conversation like this happening. So I think these new organizations who emerge, they begin to set the groundwork for what does evolve in the post-World War II period. In terms of inspiration or music, I keep thinking <laughs> in this period, lift every voice and sing. Right. You listen to the words both stanzas, and it is a song of hope. It's also a song of struggle. It doesn't just talk about the tears. It talks about the blood that has been shed. And it clearly, to me, captures the heart and soul of the black community. Now, I may be— No, in Lift Every Voice, of course, written by James Weldon Johnson, who establishes these early branches in South Carolina, becomes a powerful anthem. Uh, that talks about the struggles, but also about the hopes in the future. This window of time is also where you see songs like Strange Fruit emerging that describes the horrors of racial violence. But it's also the time where you see a new song emerging that we associate with the 1960s, a song called We Shall Overcome. But a song that has roots in South Carolina uh, during the... um, tobacco strike, uh, in, cigar strike in Charleston in the 1940s that then is later taken uh, by others and becomes this anthem of the movement. So the We Shall Overcome song that is associated with the 50s and 60s is directly connected to a labor strike in the 40s in downtown Charleston. And of course, that song began on the Sea Islands. Correct. So, so some, of the, some of the labor movement organizers heard the song and took it with them. It became part of the, the curriculum training at the Highlander Folk School in Mount Eagle, Tennessee. And one of those instructors there was the young teacher, uh, Septima Clark, who was, of course, from that area. The, the picture that you have, you have presented for us here today is one that 
isn't often told right. to a, a broader audience. Well, I think it's important to be told, too, because as we do more research on the civil rights movement, we should underscore that it was a, move, it was a series of movements over time. And that what we now see as this tremendous advancements and push in the 50s and the 60s, those roots go back many decades earlier. And many of those people who become prominent figures of the 50s and 60s are trained by this early generation of activists and professionals uh, who dared to vision a better future for South Carolina. Bobby, as always, we let our guests have one more word. If you have anything else you would like to add. No, I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, I, I do believe, and I'm very grateful that the work that you're doing to document this period, because it is one of those largely overlooked chapters uh, about our state's history. And there, there should definitely be much more in-depth discovery of what's happening during this window of time. Well, Dr. Bobby Donaldson, director of the Center for Civil Rights History at USC, thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you. My pleasure. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. It's always interesting in discussing South Carolina history with my old friend Bobby Donaldson that we continue to surprise one another with, did you know that? And as much as both of us have studied our state's history, there are still things that are coming to light. It's what makes the study of South Carolina history important but also fun. Walter Edgar's Journal this is, is a production Edgar. of Join South Carolina Public Radio. Of the Journal. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.